Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Sound Stories, an inspirational podcast for creative professionals and storytellers who want to improve their lives at home and at work. I'm Stephanie Cicerelli, your host and co-founder of Voices.com. Today we're joined by Scott Monty. Scott is the CEO and co-managing partner at Braintrust Partners and a well-seasoned speaker on marketing, branding, and storytelling. He's held talks at numerous high-profile engagements, including the Google America's Marketing Leadership Meeting, Content Marketing World, and Dreamforce, to name a few. Welcome, Scott. Hey, Stephanie. Glad to be here. We have a, a long history of, of knowing each other. I think it might have started through podcasting and, and kind of one of those uh, podcast events. But, um, you know, obviously your career has really grown and blossomed over that last decade. You've been with Ford and, and now, of course, your own company. But uh, to start things off here, as a speaker, one of the talks that you hold is focused on storytelling strategy and specifically why brands have such a hard time getting story right. One of the problems with brands, and, and, you know, I mean, it's no fault of their own. Well, it isn't, it isn't. This isn't done maliciously, but brand managers and marketing managers, you know, they're tasked with um, a difficult job, quite frankly, uh, and and that is capturing attention and trying to build trust. Now, that's ultimately the name of the game, because if you do that consistently over time, you will build in customer loyalty and customer retention and all the rest. And they wake up every day so excited to go to work and to promote their brand, to uh, think up of, you know, a, a variety of brand stories, of advertising, of, you know, what they're going to do that's specific to their brand. And the average consumer does not wake up first thing in the morning thinking about your brand, unless you happen to be Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts or Tim Hortons for our friends up north. And, and, and this sort of misaligned priority means that brands are constantly thinking of themselves first. And that's human nature. It, it, is, it is completely within the nature of humans to consider what we want, what's important to us, what's important to the people that we care about. And so that, that spills over into brands and the people that run brands think the same way. Instead of taking a step back and thinking like a consumer, and thinking about how they craft their stories to focus on making the consumer the hero, not making the brand the hero. Now, usually the brand puts itself at the center of the story. And if you're doing a good job of corporate storytelling or brand storytelling, you're making the brand more of a minor character. It doesn't necessarily devalue the brand's role in any way. If anything, that that massive impact of a minor player can be even more significant. But recognizing that the brand is not the hero, the customer needs to be the hero. The customer needs to overcome a challenge. The brand happens to interact with them as part of the, the overall process of the story. But people don't want to hear about you. They want to hear about them. And is that how they can, or a brand can set themselves apart? Is like, obviously you're putting the customer in the role of the hero. You're the guide. But even some of the, the greatest companies may be doing that. But what is it about how um, they're, they're doing that exact thing that might set them apart from others? Well, I think it really comes down to the way that they show a little bit of humanity. And they, that, that seems to be a lost art. You know, back in the day before truly mass marketing and, and certainly before the technological era in which we live where you can 
Uh, you know, everyone is their own publisher. You can be friends with thousands of people online. Years ago, business was predicated upon trust. And in those days, it was a firm handshake, a good eye contact. A person's word was their bond. It was really an individual kind of transaction. And I think as we've, as we've moved away from that and we've, we've gotten into all of these things that we can do, we don't stop to ask ourselves if these are the things that we should be doing. And in, in setting themselves apart, I think brands can show the people that work there. They can show the customers that they have. They can show the lives that they impact. You know, there's lots of different ways to go about it. You know, just by way of an example, and probably a fairly well-known one, given its virality, there was a Super Bowl commercial, now, gosh, maybe five, six years ago for Volkswagen. And it, it followed the, the frustrating day of a little kid who was dressing up as Darth Vader. And all the things he wanted to do as Darth Vader, you know, commanding the doll to sit up or the dog to stay, you know, he was frustrated because he, he didn't have the force. And his dad came home, parked the Volkswagen in the driveway, and the kid went out and kind of zapped the car. And his dad started the car with a remote starter. Now, th that miniature story there, it was really the story of the kid. It wasn't the story of Volkswagen. You know, Volkswagen played a role in his day uh, and, and made his day, ultimately, but it really wasn't fully about the car. And, and that level of humanizing the Volkswagen brand. Because, you know, you could talk about the technological achievements and the, the safety and you know, all the rest, but by humanizing the company that way, it really struck a chord with a lot of people and made people want to connect. As you said, it, it is about putting the, the hero in there. In this case, it's the little boy. And, and I love how Volkswagen had kind of incorporated the father helping out, too, to kind of make his son feel like, oh, my gosh, I, I actually did this, and, and this is amazing. It's one of those moments that you don't forget. And there are a number of those that we've seen over the years in Super Bowl commercials in particular, and they often include animals, usually horses or puppies or, or something like that. But, uh, you know, um, could you maybe give us another example of a company that's also doing this well? Um, I'll give you two. One that's fairly well known, uh, and that is Coca-Cola. Uh, a few years ago, they decided to change their entire corporate website to um, kind of like a, an online magazine, if you will, uh, where you could explore by topic. Um, it, it was it was kind of a lifestyle brand choice, and they wanted to talk about things like happiness and um, the environment and uh, family. So it, it wasn't necessarily tied to corporate initiatives, at least not in an obvious way. And, and they let you explore what mattered to you. And it was just a beautifully laid out site. It's called Coca-Cola Journey. Uh, so that was a, a consumer brand that went about that in a vastly different way. And it was risky. You know, it was a risky thing for them to, uh, to launch, but it, it's been very clear that they've increased readership, they've increased time spent on the site, and ultimately, that means people are getting a better connection with the Coca-Cola brand. On the other side, B2B, uh, we have General Electric, which has been around for 125 years, founded by Thomas Edison, you know, one of the greatest inventors of the modern age, uh, well-known. The GE brand is well-known, but 
they've done everything they can to push their brand into the innovation space. And from years past, yeah, you probably knew that GE made uh, appliances or light bulbs from its founder um, or, or other utilitarian things, but they're involved in uh, major transportation um, initiatives with manufacturing. Uh, now they're involved in uh, a lot of data processing and data sharing, and it's really pushed GE to do everything they can to talk about innovation. So all of their stories, and 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 it could be as as miniature as minuscule as a six second story uh, that they would tell on Vine. They had a series called I think it was Six Second Science Projects because Vine videos were six seconds long. They would show you how to do a science experiment in six seconds. And one I remember was they they put a a saucer of milk down, and then they put in a drop of dish soap and then they put in a variety of food coloring and they just dropped it in there and then they put a q-tip in the middle of the uh, saucer of milk and all of a sudden you began to see a swirl a kaleidoscope of colors that began moving automatically and they told that in six seconds and this was just part of the inspiration behind what it means to be an innovator that's a wonderful example and, and as you've said scott like people are really pulling on humanity we want to talk to that. And, and in the case of GE here, it was kind of, it seems like creativity, like almost reimagining. I'd like to kind of go down another trail if I can. And in an area that tends to be a mystery for brands is not just how, uh, you know, they feel about their story, but how they can harness the power of others. So getting those other people to tell the brand story too. And the most obvious example of this would be influencer marketing, which tends to be a mystery for marketers. So how does one get started in influencer marketing? Well, there are really so many different facets to or aspects to influencer marketing. And, and I think even the term itself sells the practice a little bit short. Influencer marketing has become the watchword of 2017. It was already rising in 2016, but certainly it's on the tip of everyone's tongue this year. And again, you go back to the basics behind that. Why is it that brands are turning to influencers? Well, there's a few things. One is that brands aren't as trusted as they used to be. You know, if you look at the uh, annual survey that uh, Edelman does, the Edelman Trust Barometer, You'll see that across the board, businesses, media, government, and nonprofits, trust is down year over year um, to these entities. And at the same time, people said that more, and, and this is interesting because in 2017, this was the first time that this happened. More people said that they would trust people like them over third-party academics and experts. And that's very, very telling uh, that people are looking to peers. They're looking to people that seem like uh, they match their sensibilities and their values. Okay. So, so for a brand that is already struggling with trust and, and that is already struggling with attention, there are only so many channels on which a brand can promote its material. And again, it's, it's usually chest thumping. 
if they turn to third parties, individuals that are not necessarily at the celebrity status, but at least have some sort of a reach and maybe a reach into a different sphere of the internet or a customer base that the brand normally couldn't reach. So a great example is when I was at Ford, we would uh, we would reach out to bloggers. And, and it, over time, it became more than just bloggers. It became videographers, photographers, uh, influencers in, in a variety of different spheres um, and, and, and in a variety of different media. You know, Instagram and Snapchat eventually uh, came along. But we would invite people in that were not part of the usual contingency. You know, we, we were used to dealing with business press and automotive press. So at, at an industry event, we brought in mom bloggers and uh, fashion influencers and people interested in architecture and the environment uh, and, and, you know, and, and down the line. And what this did is it provided us additional exposure into these verticals that normally would not pay attention to a car company. And on, on Ford's end, it mattered because the, the four pillars that Ford was constantly talking about were quality, green, safe, and smart. Now, quality matched up with architecture and fashion. Uh, green, obviously, the environment. Safety matched up with a lot of the parent bloggers. And smart was uh, technology. And, and we brought in a lot of technology people. So we ended up giving them experiences and letting them explore the things that mattered to them so that when they went back and provided a story for their audience in whatever format it was, it was authentic. It was in their voice and it was in what they experienced. Oh, so what were those experiences? Did you give them the vehicles? Well, in some cases we did. There was a uh, a massive campaign. This was, again, th this is where you get down to the, this bifurcation of what influencer marketing can be. You've got influencer marketing, which is very much transactional. And then you've got influencer relations, for lack of a better term, which is more akin to traditional media relations, where you're building a relationship with the, the individuals over time and you're following their content and you're you know inviting them to event after event after event the influencer marketing side uh, an example there is with a program called the fiesta movement which took place all the way back in 2009 but it's still one of the hallmarks of influencer marketing that's uh, referenced today in that case ford had a a vehicle that was going to be the same globally, the Ford Fiesta. However, the manufacturing timetable was about a year in advance, a year ahead of time in Europe. So we decided to bring a hundred of these vehicles over to the United States and to give them to 100 influencers for six months. And all that was required out of these influencers is they drove around and experienced their daily lives was that they had to create a single video every month. So a total of six videos per influencer over the course of the program. In exchange, they got use of the vehicle, they got free gas and obviously the insurance that goes along with, with the vehicle. However, because these are influencers, because these are people who are creating content as part of their daily regimen, we knew that they would do more than just what we were tasking them with. and that. By the way, the cars would be out in the wild. So there would be additional exposure to people on the streets. And ultimately, 
what that program netted and 132,000 people who submitted their email address to Ford to raise their hand as if to say, yes, tell me more about this vehicle when it's finally available here in the United States. 132,000 people? That's amazing. Yeah, it was, uh, it was more than uh, the team had expected. Uh, and, and there are some uh, calculations whereby uh, it was said that the company actually did better than if it had spent the same amount of money on uh, advertising. Wow. And, and that's largely due to, as you pointed out before, that you've invited other influencers into the storytelling process. And, and they came from all walks of life. And, and we've, we've done uh, similar kind of engagements, not necessarily in the level that you're talking about, but we strategically reach out to mommy bloggers sometimes to talk about, you know, what it's like to be a, a voice talent who works from home. You know, like you've got a young baby, but you still want to do some work. And, and this is an avenue for you. So, yeah, it's an amazing tool if you're able to have uh, champions even in there. Like these don't have to be campaigns in the sense that you're paying these people necessarily, but sometimes they will just arise organically, don't they? They, they can, certainly. Um, you know, I think we're at a point now where the more savvy among the influencers uh, understand the financial impact or the uh, reputation or brand impact that they're having. And they, uh, some of them even have agents now, believe it or not, uh, where they negotiate a, uh, a contract. And again, that's a very uh, transactional kind of uh, approach. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that, that's fine. That's one way to do it. But because a number of them are getting more savvy, it can potentially be more expensive from that perspective. If it's approached more along the lines of, you know, I don't know, co-creation of content or um, more, more along a, a traditional communications approach uh, as, as a press outreach, uh, that takes on a slightly different flavor. Um, but you know, depending on the size of the organization that you're running, if you've got marketing and communications, each running their own influencer programs, uh, you need to be careful because we, we ran into this at Ford while I was there. We had built a relationship with uh, a tech journalist and the marketing team came along and contracted this person to do a series of videos. Well, what that did is it poisoned the uh, the, the PR relationship with this person because he could be accused of no longer being impartial, of, of being a reporter and, and, and now being kind of a paid shill, so to speak. So th there is that whiff of uh, impropriety that, can, uh, th that, that it can approach uh, if you don't let these people do their things organically uh, and, and, and in the way that makes sense for their audience. And that's really important, the authenticity aspect and, and the way that people feel that they have control over the message that they're sharing. Um, but for those who you at Ford did contract to go out and do this, obviously there's those influencers and, and it resulted in a, a wonderful result for you. Uh, what were the parameters that they were given? Were they Did they have the ability to tell others that, you know, uh, Ford gave me this Fiesta to, to test out and to use? Or like how, how were they to position it so that their audiences did not feel as though they were, you know, just basically a, a mouthpiece for Ford? Well, we actually required them to disclose that they were part of this program. 
Uh, it was important to us, not only uh, from an ethical standard, um, but later on, it became very apparent as, as this became more of a regular practice, uh, that this became uh, a legal ramification. You know, the Federal Communications Commission here in the United States um, has made it a requirement now that there needs to be disclosure when there is some sort of material relationship happening, whether cash is exchanged or whether there's some uh, goods or services that are bartered. Um, the consumer needs to know when there is some sort of material relationship between a brand and an influencer. So that that was the guideline we gave them. You need to disclose that you're part of the program and you need to create a video a month for us. Other than that, you do what you want to do. You know, because if, if we clamp down any farther than that, that would completely ruin the authenticity. And they said, really? What, what if... What if we have negative feedback about the car? What if there's something we don't like? And the Ford team said, we want to hear about it. And, and we, we think you should tell everybody about it if that's the case. Now, Ford was obviously so confident in this vehicle that they were not really concerned that there'd be a lot of negative feedback. However, uh, the team created a, a feedback loop whereby anything that these influencers complained about, the team could get back to the engineering and product development team uh, so that they could make a correction or uh, reconsider how the vehicle was being assembled. It was, it was certainly part of the process. And uh, an and even more important part, even if you're not going to use the recommendation, simply providing the influencer information about what you've done with their recommendation uh, that becomes essential because, again, they feel appreciated. They feel like they're part of the process. And if you can tell them that your suggestion resulted in this change, you know, there's there's a point of pride with that, uh, where they really feel like they, they've got an investment in the relationship. Absolutely. We've seen it ourselves with customers and anyone else who might say, oh, I have this idea for how we could improve something. And when you do actually take the time to evaluate it and apply it, it's like, look at this. You actually had influence. You made an impact. And we value what you have to say. So I agree. It's the follow up and letting them know that is, is really important because you could make that change and you could do all of this stuff, but not get back to them. And they would never know that they themselves had actually helped to make this a reality. That's right. All right. So, Scott, are there any other cautions that we should know about? Like, what should we be more aware of as we go into an engagement with influencer marketers? Well, this is why I think influencer relations is probably more appropriate, because if you are following their content with any degree of regularity, or if you are even participating as a, as a commenter on their videos or on their website, or on their Facebook page. You understand the dynamic of the community in which they operate, and you have a sense for the type of content that they create. And I think some of the difficulties that we've seen uh, in the news recently are because the brand wasn't truly invested in knowing and understanding who the influencers were. It's as if they uh, outsourced the influencer marketing function to an agency which is not at all uncommon. It, it's usually uh, the rule rather than the exception. Um, but 
if, if an agency comes back and says, hey, here's a list of influencers we think you should do business with, it's the brand's responsibility to vet that list and to really understand what they're getting into rather than to just treat it like a media buy. Oh, absolutely. And and you need to know what your own content and brand guidelines are in order to even do that, right? So uh, if someone maybe hasn't explored what those criteria are for evaluating, you know, whether someone lines up with your brand or not, what would you suggest uh, some of those points should be? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, again, you just, you outlined it uh, perfectly there, understanding your brand guidelines. Is your brand... Um, a, a family-friendly brand? Is it a uh, a, a, a cheeky, um, you know, snarky brand? Um, whatever it is, you know, understand what the, what the parameters are, what the brand voice is, and try to find influencers who match up to that. Because it doesn't, you know, I was really taken aback when I had discovered that Disney had partnered with PewDiePie. You know, Disney Disney is a family brand, and PewDiePie is kind of cutting edge, um, controversial, and as we saw in some of the news reports, very controversial when you dig down a little deeper. But it just didn't seem to align to what we all know the Disney brand to be. And again, a little research would have uncovered that early on, and and a decision could have been made of, of something more than just looking at reach and numbers, you know, really looking at fundamentally what the content is, what's being talked about, and how that fits with what your brand is trying to accomplish. As you said, we can definitely outsource these sort of things as, as business owners or companies to external parties. But if those parties don't actually understand our brand and they're just kind of saying, oh, well, here's a great influencer. They've got a humongous reach. It's the sort of people you want to talk to. Uh, that that doesn't cut it. It isn't just about reach. It's about integrity. And it's about um, having that correlation and, and feeling like this person is almost an extension of your sales force in a way. Yeah, exactly. And it really gets back to asking ourselves not can we do it, but should we do it? Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I think we should leave it there. Those are brilliant words. But before we let you go, Scott, I do have to ask you this question. Why do you love what you do? Oh, boy. Yeah, this is the moment. <laughs> That's an interesting question. I don't, I don't stop to think about it in those terms every day. Um, you know, I think for me, and I'm going to dig way back here now. And this may help you understand uh, some of the context behind the positioning around storytelling. When I was at university, I was a classics major. I studied ancient Greece and ancient Rome and, and all the things that came with them. And I didn't necessarily appreciate it at the time, but as I've grown in business, and come to understand consumers and, and just the, the, the human psyche. What I've realized is, first of all, I'm more appreciative for that education uh, than I ever thought I would be. But the reason is, over the past, you know, let's say, 3,000 years of recorded human history, we really haven't changed. And technologically, things have come along and the innovations and inventions have happened and what an amazing world we live in today. But fundamentally, deep down, people still want the same thing. They want what matters to them. 
They want to be able to uh, leave a mark on the world, uh, you know, leave the world a better place for the next generation. If you can understand those motivations, if you can understand how consumers are thinking and then build your programs in a way or build your content in a way that accommodates that, you're going to be much better off. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> it's, it's lovely to know your background too and, and how that applies. Well, thank you for being with us today, Scott. Now, for those who are interested in learning more about you and your company, where can they go to find you? Well, you can find me at my website, scottmonte.com, and you can find out about my company at our corporate website, braintrust.partners. Thank you for joining us on Sound Stories. If you'd like to subscribe to Sound Stories, there are two really easy ways to do that. You can either go to iTunes, look us up there. Really easy, you'll get every episode as soon as it's ready. Or you could go to our website, voices.com slash podcasts slash sound stories. We'll see you next time.